Topical cream, a pod listener's dream. Unfucking the news and current events. Topical cream, yeah, you know what I mean. A quarter of an hour gets you our two cents. Topical cream. Hey, unfuckers, we're back with a quick update on student debt in light of the Biden administration's announcement of partial debt relief. Considering there are 43 million Americans managing more than $1.6 trillion in student loans, it's certainly worth revisiting how this all played out. We're going to move past the hysteria on the left and the right to take the emotion out of the discussion and dig into the policy and strategy behind the decision. But I do want to make a couple of political observations before we go any further. In our student debt episode, we made a couple of predictions. Toward the end of the episode, I mentioned that Biden was going to do what he was going to do. And it would be, quote, marginal and somewhat helpful. I also guessed that it would be $10,000. So speaking of the latter, I'm no psychic. This was Biden's campaign promise. But in fact, he sweetened the pot by adding an additional 10 grand for all those who are Pell Grant recipients. So for anyone criticizing him for doing too little, it should be noted that for a significant portion of debt holders on the lower end of the income spectrum, this is really big news. In fact, it's going to wipe out a pretty healthy amount of total debt and unshackle millions of borrowers altogether. On the political front, the responses have been predictable. Conservatives were locked and loaded to criticize this as a bailout to the participation trophy generation, which overlooks so many crucial points about the character and cost of debt that has accrued in the past 20 years. But as the loyal opposition, they don't have to be nuanced. They just have to be angry and prey on a perverted sense of injustice that lower-income individuals and families are getting some relief while others in the past did not. I won't patronize on fuckers with a long diatribe about the inconsistency of this stance. Sure you will. Okay, just a little. For shits and giggles, just so we can map out helpful talking points, here are some general responses. If you own a home, you get to deduct mortgage interest. If you rent, you don't. If you're a middle-income wage earner, you pay 6.2% towards Social Security. Those who earn more than $147,000 a year stop paying once they hit this number, which makes Social Security a regressive tax. Thanks, Alan Greenspan. I hate you. More than 5 million business owners had PPP loans from 2020 completely forgiven. This money was treated as below-the-line income and therefore is non-taxable. In other words, free money. So far, the average budget impact estimate of forgiveness is around $500 billion over 10 years, with some assumptions that we'll talk about in a minute. The Trump tax cuts cost the nation about double that amount and potentially more. I hate you! The increase in college tuition has doubled the rate of inflation over the past 40 years for a whopping total increase of 1,100%. So your old debt is not the fucking same as the new debt. There are senior citizens who have student debt payments deducted from their social security payments. 
Call back to our corporate irresponsibility episode. It's estimated that wealthy individuals and corporations are hiding $36 trillion offshore to avoid taxes. And of that amount, Americans are responsible for $10 trillion of it. So do tell me again about fairness. Go on. Ah, horseshit! And then... In the ultimate fucking haha, conservatives pushed for the liberalization of trade agreements so they could move manufacturing jobs offshore. Then they told workers to go to college to retrain for service jobs. But without trade union protections, the very same conservative employers were able to pay workers less and make them at will and more vulnerable, which led to wage stagnation among middle and lower class workers who couldn't afford the fucking student debt that they were told to take on to get that mid-level management and service fucking job. And now there are even some Republicans saying that quiet part out loud that this giveaway will reduce the incentive for poor people to enlist in the military, which should tell you exactly how fucking expendable poor people are in this country where Republicans are concerned. Can we get serious now? Yes, let's. All right, let's talk about the good here. Joe, what do we got? Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 and outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. Okay, so that's the initial shot. $10,000 for all student debt holders. $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients. So going back to our original episode, we noted how the default trends along racial lines are so significant that nearly 40% of all black student debt holders who started school in the 2000s have defaulted on their loans. A sizable chunk of these Pell Grant recipients are indeed from black families in the United States, so this will offer a great relief to help shore up this disparity. Further, in terms of equity, This helps align with the dramatic increase in total indebtedness given the rising cost of higher education, as the average debt burden over the last decade has gone from $24,700 per student to more than $36,000. What this implies is that there's still going to be a tremendous amount of debt in the country, but that payments will return to something theoretically more aligned with prior decades with respect to income. So closer to parity with the past for those screaming about fairness. There's a talking point out there in the ether about how this isn't really helping the poor or the middle class because college is viewed as a luxury, something for high-class people. This doesn't square with the facts, as we pointed out in the original episode. So remember this additional truism should you be challenged on this idea. Wealthy people pay as they go. They are not the ones holding the debt. Let's get some additional perspective by adding together some real numbers here. These are national averages for monthly household expenditures. The average household in America spends around $3,000 on rent, $800 in transportation from car payments to fuel, insurance, and service or public transportation, $320 in utilities from internet to heat, $250 on personal clothing and accessories, $600 on food, and $430 on health insurance. Without student loan debt, that's $64,800 in out-of-pocket expenses to run the average household. After state and federal withholding taxes, this household, with $0 left over, would have to earn $87,000 a year just to break even. That's without student debt. 
the average household income in 2022 is estimated to be, wait for it, $87,000 a year. And how does that line up with this targeted program? About 90% of the, the, the eligible beneficiaries make under $75,000 a family. Right. Thanks, Joe. Now, the average student loan payment, according to the Fed, is about $393 a month from the old New York Fed data. EducationData.org extrapolated this even further and updated it with a current estimate of $460. Other sources estimate that the number is closer to $300 for those, quote, actively paying their loans, which implies to me that they're accounting for defaults to drive down the average. So let's just call it $400 a month for argument's sake. And that assumes in this average household, there's only one person with student debt. Student debt is just one of myriad reasons why households incur credit card debt. Those figures that I rattled off don't include any additional money for out-of-pocket expenses or retirement savings. We're just talking about the bare fucking minimum to get by. That's why even $125,000 isn't such a fantastic number anymore in the United States, which is a ridiculous thing to even say out loud, because it should be. Even at $125,000 and the bare essentials that we described above, you're talking about around $25,000 left over every year to go towards paying down debt, discretionary spending, emergency spending, or savings for retirement. That's what we want. I mean, that's the point of working, right? So the fact that Pell Grant recipients are potentially having their debt almost entirely wiped out or that the vast majority of borrowers are going to have some relief doesn't mean that we're minting new millionaires who beat the system. This plan gives Americans a little bit of breathing room to make better, healthier decisions. And for all of those yelling and screaming about inflation and how this undoes everything the Inflation Reduction Act accomplishes to bring down inflation, let's all remember a couple of key points. First off, extra money in the pockets of low-income and middle-class Americans didn't cause inflation to skyrocket. We covered that so unfuckers have this down. Wall Street's commodity gambling habit to find yield in the markets and corporate greed from, quote, taking price, contributed to the lion's share of inflation on most household goods and transportation costs. Supply chain issues from the shutdown in China contributed to the bulk of inflation on raw materials. None of this came from Americans with a little extra spending cash from government checks. In fact, we also demonstrated that the vast majority of stimulus funds to American households went to paying down credit card debt, catching up on mortgage payments and rent, or buying more food. So please, please don't let anyone get away with saying that not paying student debt is going to unleash such outsized consumer spending that it will drive prices higher. It's just not true. Okay. What else, Joe? No one with an undergraduate loan today or in the future whether for community college or a four-year college, will have to pay more than 5% of their discretionary income to, re to repay their loan. All right. So my initial prediction was that we wouldn't do anything to fix the structural issue of the system. I'll explain where this was right in a bit, but I have to give the administration credit on this point. This is a really, really important piece of the puzzle. Right now, Payments can't exceed 10% of household expenditures, and they're proposing to cut that in half. Important caveat, this doesn't appear to be settled. It is a proposal, but there's nothing yet to indicate that this isn't within the power of the executive branch to do this. 
Even more impressive is this. Joe? And after you pay your loan for 20 years, your obligation will be fulfilled if it hadn't already been fulfilled, meaning you won't have to pay any more, period. Like I said, impressive. One last thing. If you did happen to catch our original episode, you might remember that we ripped apart the Fakakta process that public services employees like charity workers and military service members have to go through to get their loans forgiven. I won't play the clip from Uncle Joe because it's a little meandering and because it's definitely still being worked out, but he's promised to streamline the process and give retroactive credit for service in order to qualify. Suffice to say, if they can really get this done, it will be a blessing. So the top-level part is easy to digest. But these other features he's touting are still being worked out, so it's important not to get too far ahead of ourselves. The 20-year cap on payments, 5% income threshold, and public service streamlining are all important, but they remain open questions until they become official policy or withstand challenges from yet-to-be-seen sources. And there are more questions, like... It's estimated that the size of student debt forgiveness will cost the government anywhere between $320 billion and $600 billion over 10 years. There's no official CBO analysis as of yet, nor do I expect that the analysis will be done until other key aspects of the program are defined, like which income years will apply, right? Because like as of now, it seems as though the government will evaluate your income from the prior year's tax return. Well, what if you lost your job since then? Will this extend over the 10-year budget window, which is what most of the budget models assume? If so, this assumes that new borrowers will be eligible for relief as well. But how often? How many times can you apply for it? What? How? Why? I have so many questions! That's for the budget folks to argue about. Unfuckers know from the MMT episode that this kind of revenue loss to the federal government is fucking meaningless. No government spending initiative is waiting on student debt payments to survive. That's just not how it works. And, all things being equal, what hasn't been factored as of yet, which I assume the CBO will model at some point, is what kind of pickup will there be from a reduction in defaults? So, we have some questions. But we covered a lot of positive things so far, so you might be wondering why I included Pito Tuiu in the title of this episode. Okay, so we covered the good, and there's a lot of it. And for all those who want to criticize Joe Biden, the one thing that you can't say is that he broke a promise. In fact, it's becoming increasingly apparent that Joe Biden might be the most honest public servant to occupy the White House since Jimmy Carter. Establishment Democrats are going to play this to the hilt for the midterms and beyond, and they have every right to do so. If you're conservative, you don't like him because he's keeping these promises. In fact, it's these promises that made you vote against him. And if you're progressive like me, you never liked the promises to begin with. And on the last point, with respect to student debt and the progressive point of view, here's why. Beyond student debt relief, there's a bigger challenge a systemic challenge. Every single promise kept by the Biden administration essentially helps to maintain the status quo. It prevents us from backsliding further in terms of income, infrastructure, carbon emissions, and so on. But to effect real change, 
We can't simply ventilate a bad system. We have to change things at a foundational level. Even if debt relief is baked into the out years over the 10-year budget cycle, it remains at the whim of the next president. What can be given can be taken away. And that makes this a fragile and possibly a temporary fix. The real structural changes that we identified in the original episode aren't even being discussed. Like being able to discharge student debt in bankruptcy. Why does this class of debt deserve protection? It just doesn't make any sense. The more fundamental and logical financial play here was to also refinance all government student debt at near zero or at a minimum, the federal funds rate. In fact, refinance all debt, even the private debt. See, students should be able to borrow at the same rates as the banks, or how about lower? This shouldn't be a moneymaker for the government. And in fact, I stand by the assertion that a reduction in interest rates that puts payments more within reach would also contribute to lowering the default rate, which would more than offset the reduction in payments. There's also nothing that attempts to deal with the principal problem. And I don't mean the primary problem. I mean the principal, the principal amount, the actual loan total. The reason that loans have increased so dramatically is because the cost to attend college and university has gone up by unfathomable amounts. And why? Because so many people are taking out student loans. They charge more for the simple reason that they can. That's why we spoke about devising a way to force these institutions to put some skin in the game. And on this, I still think that LBJ's proposal that Josh Mitchell detailed in The Debt Trap makes the most sense. Create a shared risk pool that all colleges and universities pay into if they want to be eligible to receive federal loan payments for their students. The greater the percentage of debt required to pay for tuition, the greater the premium colleges would have to pay to participate. These funds could be used to A, offset any defaults so the government isn't left guaranteeing these loans, and B, to help subsidize community colleges in the same states the private colleges are located. And before you balk at this second notion, understand something that we didn't cover in the original episode. Not a single college or university in this country pays property taxes, not one. Some pay taxes on investment properties they own for non-academic purposes because they're so fucking flush with cash. For example, Boston, right? Boston, this vaunted university town, it's like a big part of their fucking reputation. They've been begging their higher ed partners to participate in pilot programs to help subsidize city services and not one has chosen to do so, not one. Harvard, BU, BC, Northeastern, MIT, etc. They've all thumbed their noses at their home city. These aren't good neighbors, so fuck them. Let's review. Three fundamental changes in order change everything. One, refinance all outstanding debt. Not only does that reduce the burden on individuals and offer loans at the same rate that banks get, it helps put private predatory lenders like Sally Mae and others out of business. Once again, fuck them. You'll have to listen to the original episode to learn why if you don't already know. Two, force colleges and universities to pay into shared risk pools that are tiered based upon the amount they have to take on per student. This will force the colleges to slow the rate of tuition increases. 
Want to build that new fucking wellness center, stadium, movie theater, and restaurant pavilion? Use your fucking endowment. Use this pooled money to offset defaults so the government isn't on the hook and send the balance to community colleges to make them more competitive. Community college should be 100% free. They should pay competitive salaries to professors and, of course, offer a quality education. And three, the last simple policy change is to allow the discharge of student debt in bankruptcy. This is just stupid and the most regressive part of this whole mess. Oh, and automatically forgive 100% of any senior debt that's being deducted from Social Security for the love of God. Last point, I promise. This one is for my progressive unfuckers. Did we get everything that we want? Not even close. Was it a start? The fulfillment of a campaign promise by a moderate Democrat that we didn't want? Yes. But here's the most important thing to remember. There is no fucking way that this is even a campaign promise, let alone an actual fucking thing that's happening without you, without the progressives. Look, I know this shit is hard and it takes time. And you want to grab these motherfuckers by the collar and just shake them and just give them all the sense that we just went through and be like, come on. But know this, it is working. You're getting through inch by inch. We're getting there because you fought like hell for it. You yelled about it on social media. You made progressive candidates competitive in major races, thereby putting the fear of God into the establishment. You took to the streets. And for that, I have to say, Nettie would be proud, but she wouldn't be satisfied.